Hello and welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast, episode number 40. This week I am speaking to a lady called Fiona Moffat. Fiona is a physio by background, but she's looking into some of the barriers to change that we try to implement in the critical care world. She's also presenting at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference, which is in December of this year, 2015. So if you're listening to it after that, you've missed it, I'm afraid. If you're listening to it before 20, uh, December 2015... Please come along to the conference. We've made, we're making it a good one this year. Ganesh and the committee are working really hard to make it a good experience for everybody. So let's go. So Fiona and I chatted about a week or so ago now. She is in part of a pilot study which is then going to go into a bigger study about some of the barriers to change and she talks about some of the theories behind that. Um, which I've linked to the show notes, but more of that's late later. Let's go and hear the chat now. I noticed that on the morning of day two, you're down to do a early mobilisation workshop with Brian Cuthbertson and Ella Segaran, who I don't know are chairs. Eddie Fan's going to be there, who I think quite famous in the critical care world Um, Carol Hodgson I have actually already spoken to uh, via Skype and she's one of the interviews that's in the can ready to go I don't know if you've met Carol at all I've not met her before I know obviously I know her work but uh, I've not had the the pleasure of meeting her yet I'm looking forward to that and then I noticed that you I noticed that your name was there as well Mm. so I thought "Mm, Fiona Moffat let's go and have a look and see who Fiona Moffat (laughs) is and from the internet I can see that you have a PhD am I right in saying that? That's right yeah yeah. Now you'll have to forgive me some of some of the phrases used in your PhD summary (laughs) threw me a little bit. Perhaps if I give you a little sort of summary of where I've come from. Um, I'm a physiotherapist by professional background and for many years I worked as a as a jobbing physiotherapist within critical care and then for about another 10 years worked as a critical care outreach practitioner. Um, but my grand plan had always been to do a, a PhD and um, a studentship came up which was looking at something called lean thinking within mm-hmm. uh, the emergency department mm-hmm. and lean thinking is a process improvement technology which essentially arose from um, Toyota production systems and my PhD sort of in a in a nutshell really is is looking at how technologies such as um, such as lean thinking so productivity improvement strategies make that translation from an industrial or business arena into something as, as complex as healthcare and what the implications of that are for things like um, you know professional identity and, and the way in which the service develops and the way in which the, the the healthcare context embraces or doesn't embrace that that particular um, intervention or, or technology um, and this is essentially how I've come to, to be involved with um, with the academic conference um, in, in December, because my current area of interest as a as a you know as a postdoctoral um, what's what it was as a as a you know somebody who's in their postdoctoral phase is to 
kind of put my two hats back on. So my original critical care hat and within critical care, I was always absolutely passionate about early mobilization. I felt as a physiotherapist, it was almost my USP. It was where I could really, really add significant value to, to, you know, to patient experience and patient outcome. Mm. Um, but I'm also coming at, 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 at my particular piece of work, my particular project, with this other hat that I've developed as a social scientist. And I'm particularly interested in um, technologies, if you like, in, in the sort of loosest sense or, or complex interventions and how they come to be normalised or fail to normalise within healthcare settings. So, you know, we know that there are long-term physical and psychological sequelae of, of critical care admission. Those have been well documented. They're a given. And we know that the, the adverse effects are becoming increasingly evident as, as critical care survival rates improve. And we've got this, this, you know, wonderful and burgeoning body of evidence that suggests that early rehabilitation of those critically ill adults can help mitigate some of the deleterious consequences. And clearly that's, let's say, has benefits for the patient, but it also has benefits for the healthcare organisation and, you know, wider society. Um, We also know from work of, you know, people like Carol Hodgson that early rehabilitation is is safe and feasible. Mm. And yet, despite all of this, you know, great evidence and the dis- despite the fact that we have, you know, very positive national guidelines, there's been a number of surveys that suggest that practice is at best, you know, inconsistent. And that's not just within the UK, that's, that's globally. So that's, you know, within North America and Australasia as well. So as a social scientist, I'm really interested in this, this translation process. And that has been identified as, as warranting further study within, you know, this this notion of early rehabilitation in critical care. Um, and so I guess I, I come at it from this, this angle of, um, you know, trying to understand why something, a, a complex intervention like early rehabilitation, which just seems, you know, like the best thing since sliced bread, why it isn't something that is embraced, almost what the barriers and facilitators are, if you like. And what are they? Well, (laughs) this is the work that, actually, you've terrified me now saying that it's about a week, uh, sorry, about a month to go, because I'm (laughs) still in the process of collecting the data from this pilot study and analysing it. Okay, you might have to wing it a bit on the day. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be hot off the press, literally. Okay. Um, The approach that I've taken is um is very much um theory driven if you like so you know i'm i'm coming at it from this um oh, i'm a little bit reluctant to say this because i don't want to put people off but i'm i'm coming at it from a, a sociological perspective but a very practical sociological perspective um and there's a a school of thought within the sociological field called science technology and society and it's very interested in um, diffusion of innovations and knowledge transfer and it it thinks not just about the people who are doing the work and whether they think it's a good idea to do it or not 
but also the structures and the context within which these new technologies are embedded. And um, it treats technologies or complex interventions such as, you know, this notion of early rehabilitation as very much socially constructed or, or socially shaped. And essentially what this perspective says is, you know, everything is contingent. There's nothing is a given. You know, a, a technology or a, a complex intervention may look like the best thing ever, but it doesn't have a logical or predestined trajectory that means it's, you know, it's, it's destined to be a success. And what this uh, sociological school of thought says is that, you know, despite the fact that things are promoted at a global or national standard, they're often redefined at localised levels and they might ultimately founder because they're perceived to be incommensurable with existing knowledge and beliefs and working practices and even the other pre-existing technologies that, there, that are there. So my project that I'm, I'm involved with at the moment is, is about unpacking that black box, if you like, and saying, well, what is it that what is it about the existing knowledges and beliefs and practices and technologies that mean that, you know, early mobilization is at times problematic? You know, why isn't it embraced? And, you know, why aren't we all doing it? So that's I mean, that to me sounds like quite a large project because Ooh. there's. I mean, I would imagine you could probably list off on several sheets of paper some of the reasons why people don't do the things that mm. research says that we should yeah. do. How are you going to... A number of questions occur to me there. First of all, how are you going to break those possible um, areas of resistance down? Because I would imagine they could be separated into, let's say, for example, there is... I hesitate to call it ignorance. I don't mean complete Ooh, ignorance, no. but um, and 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 a knowledge or and and not knowing of the current research, for example. Yeah. And then there's going to be knowing the current research, but not believing that it applies to you. Yeah. And then there's going to be knowing the current research and trying to apply it, but coming up against other barriers. How are you going to break all those areas down so that you can come out with some meaningful? useful data at the end. Well that's interesting because you should clearly have been a sociologist because you've articulated beautifully what my theoretical approach is. Okay. So um, there's an increasingly um, accepted perspective that a social theory driven approach is of significant value in strengthening programs of improvement and I think for many years uh, clinicians and practitioners are very much um, sort of shied away from theory driven approaches because they're you know they seem a bit mystical and fantastical and a little bit complex and you know and ephemeral um but there has been a little bit of a paradigm shift and, and if anybody's interested there's a really really neat paper by Davidoff et al which is published in um bmj quality and safety this year which is about demystifying social theory um, and, and showing or, or, or trying to articulate the benefits it can have in, in exactly what you've just described about really trying to find an explanatory model for unpacking these ideas about what people's existing knowledge might be, what their existing beliefs might be and, and you know, what sort of physical and contextual barriers there are. So if I just give you a, a, a little bit of background to the project that I'm doing. It's, it's very much a pilot study at the moment, 
Um, and the data that we're collecting, we are hoping to use to inform a bigger bid so that we can do, um, you know, a multi-center study. Um, but about, oh, I think about six months ago, in one of our, our local uh, critical care units, um, we had a, a piece of kit um, implemented, which was something called um, a Motormed. And it's, it's sort of like a motorized functional trainer, if you like, which means that patients can um, participate in exercise therapy at every level of the rehabilitation process. So they could be sedated and ventilated and exercised passively. They could have um, active assisted exercise as they are weaning, and they can then have resisted exercise as they are starting, you know, as they're, they're uh, starting to improve, and uh, and therefore, you know, the physiotherapists or uh, the therapy services are, are wanting these patients to to um, you know develop muscle strength and muscle power. Mm-hmm. Alongside this uh, Motormed um, uh, trainer, we also had. Um, they employed a couple of therapy support workers. And the idea was to really push this idea of early rehabilitation. So our project is about doing an evaluation, a six-month evaluation of of what has happened within critical care, given this focus on early mobilisation for their patients. And the... Social theory that that I've adopted is is a mid-range theory called the normalization process theory. And it's it's something that I've used in, well, I used it in my PhD, or for some of my PhD work. And it's a theory that's been developed by um, an academic called Carl May. And um, Carl was interested in sort of like the process problems. So how you go about implementing new ways of thinking and acting and organizing in healthcare, but also the structural problems. So, that, you know, the, the problematics with actually integrating new inter- interventions and innovations into existing organizational and professional settings. So it's very much of that science, technology and society school of thought that I was talking about earlier. And he describes it rather neatly as this sociological toolkit that can be used to understand the dynamics of implementing, embedding and integrating something like early rehabilitation. Into Funnily enough, I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at the toolkit now, as you said, yeah. I just bought it up on the Internet. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Sorry, carry on. And, you know, it's, it's actually being, you know, I came across it in its, its sort of infancy, really, a number of years ago. But it's, you, you know, you can see if you, you know, if you do a Google Scholar search that actually it's being used really widely within healthcare to look at new innovations. And it, it's, it's framed almost around four domains or four mechanisms the first is coherence, and so that's about almost like a sense-making process. It's trying to understand how staff might distinguish something like early rehabilitation from what you know what currently exists, what their current practice is. Can they agree as to what its purpose is? Do they know what's re- required of them to participate within that early rehabilitation? And do they even perceive it as being valuable to their work? Mm. The, the second domain is about cognitive participation. So it's that's almost about um, the buy-in, if you like, I guess. Do they agree it's a legitimate part of their work? Do they join in with delivering this intervention? And 
and does there appear to be this continued support across the the, the you know the, the critical care staff for that intervention? Um, the third domain is about collective action, and this is about the the ability to, to almost to do the work. Can they perform the required tasks? Um, what are the sorts of barriers that prevent them? Is it a skill, or is it knowledge, or is it is, is it something structural, a structural constraint? And how do they feel about others? So do they trust one another's ability to take that work on and, and that, you know, and trust others' expertise? And also kind of looking a little bit more at the corollary of that and, and, and is, do they feel that the intervention is supported by the organization? The final uh, domain or mechanism that Carl May describes is, is reflexive monitoring. And that's, I guess, about how stuff um see the benefits or or not of something like early rehabilitation so it asks how staff can access and organize knowledge about the effects of it um can they assess whether the intervention is worthwhile for themselves and others so what sort of feedback do, do they get about this this process and can they modify their work in the response to you, you know to uh, their appraisal of the intervention so I suppose quite simply, it uses those four domains or those four mechanisms to say, you know, what is the work? Who is doing the work and why? How does it actually play out over time? And, and why does it develop in the way that it does? I think um, it, it is a really interesting way to think about it because I, I like you, um, a a little bit of a, I, I have a bit of a bugbear about early mobilisation. Mm. I spoke to a gentleman called uh, John Cress, who works mm. over in Chicago. Yeah. He was the um, guy who started the sedation holiday yeah. thing 10 years yeah. ago. Really nice chap, spoke to me for a podcast and I chatted him about it. And um, one of the things that he said was, and um, I've also spoken to a lady called Louise Rose, who works over in Canada, mm. um, and she runs a department where early mobilisation is quite important. And one of the things that John Crest said, that if, even if you're not going to do anything else, at least get the patient's feet on the floor yeah. um, on a regular yeah. basis. And it's such a simple thing mm. to do you know you've used the word complex interventions a lot but I would almost argue that a lot of these interventions are far from being complex a lot of what the other stuff the nursing staff does is complex like the drug interventions we do the the um, dialysis machines that they use but actually some of the stuff that may, could make a bigger difference mm. is getting the patient's feet on the floor sitting them up at 30 degrees sitting yeah. them up at 45 degrees yeah. how of of those um, of those things you've just spoken about, um, they are all. Are you going to ask the people within the departments to assess themselves on those scores, or are you going to do them subjectively? Somebody else going to score them on those? How would you measure the the participants on those? Okay. Because looking at the toolkit I've got in front of me, for example, one question says participants access information about the effects of the intervention, mm. and then you've got like a, a sliding yeah. light yeah. at scale, yeah. haven't you? From not at all to completely. Yeah. Who's assessing that? Are the are they themselves assessing that, or is some, or are you doing both? No. What we are doing, um, so actually, there's there's um, a really interesting paper in press just at the moment. Um, I've literally just come across it, um, and it's an Australian study by Holdsworth et al. And they've used um, open-ended surveys 
and that's in a, I think that's in an Australian ITU. Um, and it's very much, um, you know, a, a elicitation study, like a pilot study. Um, and they've used, actually, they've used um, uh, social theory, uh, but they've used a different one. They've used the theory of planned behavior. Um, and so they've collected individuals, um, you know, perspectives via survey. We're going to approach it slightly differently, um, or we're approaching it slightly differently for this pilot study in that we are doing some semi-structured interviews and some focus groups. So we are interviewing um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, therapy support workers, nurses and the doctors. And as I've alluded to, this, this pilot study is very much about informing, uh, you know, a larger multi-centre study. And what we would do there is use similar um, data collection, qualitative data collection techniques, but also add in um, observation, because quite clearly we know that there can be a difference between what people say and what people actually do. Mm. Um, so we feel that that would be a benefit. Official um, sort of method, data collection method to to complement that and to sort of triangulate the data that we're collecting and, and make it more robust, make it more uh, reliable, if you like, in you know yeah. from, to use quantitative terms in a qualitative setting. The other thing that we'd like to do is that um, ultimately that we are aware that we are we are defining our critical care context in terms of this pilot study as the 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 critical care culture the critical care physical and geographical environment and the the social agents within that in terms of the the staff but what we realize we're omitting in this pilot are the patients and the carers mm. and of course they may be as much a barrier to early mobilization or, or equally a facilitator as, as you know, the other things that we're considering. So uh, our pilot study, we've made some pragmatic decisions about, but certainly that would be an element that we want to, um, you know, to include within our larger study. So are you going to seek their views? Are you going mm. to actually ask the relatives and the patients? Are you going to ask them questions about this? Because I think the other side to that coin as well, you say there may be a barrier. They may also be acutely aware of some that they may see things that we as practitioners don't mm. see that, that, that because we do this job every day that we become unaware of and they may have some good suggestions yeah. for us. You know. Absolutely. Um, okay. I, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? You know, you say that, you know, this has been a, a big thing for you over the years. As, you know, I mentioned that I was a, a jobbing physio in critical care and even, oh, you know, it must be 15 years ago, you know, I, I had this real thing about getting patients up and moving. Um, and, you know, it, I was acutely aware then that when I used to talk to relatives and say that this would be my plan for, you know, for your loved one this afternoon and they'd say, they're on a life support machine, you know. Yeah, their concept. Some of the nurses would say that as well. Uh, their concept of rehabilitation is putting a tracksuit on and trainers. And to go back to one of your earlier comments about, you know, you were saying that I describe it as a complex intervention. And, and I know exactly what you mean in, in that actually, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it, it isn't complex per se. But it is complex in that for many, it represents a paradigm shift. It relies on an awful lot of skills in terms of assessment, monitoring, 
and communication and, and you know, and, and creating a convincing argument for mobilisation and rehabilitation. So absolutely, I think that exploring patients and carers and relatives' beliefs will be very, very important in creating a convincing argument that, I don't know, that, that, that changes the culture of critical care to, you know, to one that is, um, you know, that embraces early mobilisation as something which is part of normal practice. And I think we sort of need to redefine, if you like, what we understand by rehabilitation. You know, and you said something, it could be as simple as putting your feet on the floor. It could be as simple as, a, a you know, a 30 degree, you know, head up tilt. Mm. It's about understanding rehabilitation in a different way and understanding that for the, the sickest of the sick, putting your feet on the floor or sitting at head up 30 degrees constitutes a physiological stressor in terms of exercise mm. and it's uh, you know there, there are practitioners out there around the world who are advocating that we don't just do the simple stuff do yeah. we you know that i've heard people suggest that um, and and tell me that it actually happens and i've yet to see it happen in any itu i've worked in that we've had patients walking up and down you know at, around the bedside with the attached to the ventilator uh, and I, I used to do that 15 years ago <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wish I wish it did happen, and I wish I could put my hand on my heart and say it does happen, yeah. but it doesn't no, in my it, experience. It, it really doesn't. And, it, and as yeah. I say, there, there are lots of things, you know, I'm talking about the culture of critical care, but then there's, you know, it goes beyond that. There's the, the whole organisational culture as well, you know, this idea that we've got to get people out as quickly as possible and move them on, and, you know, rehabilitation is time consuming you know particularly with these patients with complex needs and with you know numerous lines and attachments it's it's time consuming it's labor intensive and we have to kind of change our mindset to say well yes it might be those things but look at the benefits but there is there is evidence out there isn't there that if you do these things that you can actually reduce length of stay yeah. um, not necessarily intensive care stay but you can reduce length of hospital stay can't you yeah, and I, I believe there's also research that would show that actually you improve the quality of life in the long term as well for a lot of the absolutely. patients I mean Daryl Needham so, has been you know he's produced so much research in this field and this is what I was saying at the beginning we just seem to have all this burgeoning literature and evidence base <laughs> which is why for me it's so interesting that it you know it it, it isn't up and running and it's you know it's still problematic uh, if I had if I had to put you on the spot and this may be unfair and you might not want to answer this question uh -huh. what do you what do you think some of the the biggest hurdles are that we need to um, address in order to get things like this moving forward? Well, I, from my experience and from, you know, kind of like the, the early sort of provisional data, I think it's a lot about beliefs about rehabilitation and um, about, as I was saying, about reconceptualizing that, not just seeing it as you know, I'm being a bit glib, but, you know, getting your trainers on and your tracksuit on and, and you, you know, and going doing 20 star jumps and a few burpees, but actually rethinking that rehabilitation and early mobilisation can constitute other things, particularly when people's, uh, certain individuals' physiological reserve is so low. 
Mm. Um, and I think it's also about reconceptualizing beliefs of, um, you know, who is responsible for this. Because I feel passionately that this isn't just about physiotherapy or occupational therapy. This is about the critical care team having a commitment to early mobilisation, early reposition, because we know, I mean, there's certainly that, you know, there are things that we can do with sedated patients which constitute exercise and rehabilitation, clearly, but we need to work with the nursing staff and the, the medical staff for these, you know, to, to capitalise on these sedation holidays and these sedation breaks, you know, to think about assessment of um you know, of neurological damage and, you know, some of the other sequelae associated with, with critical illness, you know, the polyneuropathies and neuropathies. So it's it's very much about having a team approach. And I, I think it's those, almost those normative beliefs about rehabilitation that, that needs yeah. changing. So we need to think of it as a, a much more diverse process, a much more all-encompassing process and a process that everybody has some contribution to. And is is there also, for me, there's also uh, a need to ensure that um, when a patient comes into intensive care, a little bit like when they come into the hospital as a whole, one of the things that we're all encouraged to think about when the patient just comes into hospital is we need to start thinking about discharge mm. dates. Surely we need also to encourage the intensive care staff, and in this, like you, I include nurses, doctors, yeah. physios, everybody. We need to then need to, to encourage them that it doesn't matter how sick the patient is when they come into the department. We should start thinking about the discharge mm. route from intensive care um, at the early stages, so that we are focused on things like because again, another one of my bugbears is the over sedation of the intensive care patient. Mm. It drives me absolutely bonkers mm. that I can walk along uh, the end of the beds of a lot of the patients and they're being marked as a sedation score of you know yeah. minus two, minus three. Yeah. And I, I, when I ask the nurses why are they so heavily sedated, a lot of them haven't got a good answer for mm. it, and I just think. If we start the process earlier, it should be they're over the acute phase now, it, and that could that could be beginning as early as you know mm. halfway through day one yeah. or perhaps day yeah. two. You know, we talk about the sexy things like the sepsis six <laughs> and the fluid we give them, and do we use dobutamine or dopamine or neuroadrenaline? But what we don't say is we should be turning the sedation down, and we should start. You know, we need to start moving their limbs now. Yeah. We need to start doing some passive movements. We need to do that now as well as worry about all the other drugs that they're on. But sometimes we seem to forget that. So for the first three or four days of this patient's illness. They're over sedated, they're possibly paralysed, mm -hmm. they're never moved. Um, we turn them just too hourly just to mm -hmm. protect their pressure rose, but we don't worry about their muscle loss mm -hmm. or their future ICU acquired weakness, mm -hmm. which is a, must be a dreadful thing to suffer oh. from. And, you know, some of them come away with these polyneuropathies yeah. as well. Um, and, you know, they're virtually paralysed in bed because of some of the things that we have or haven't done to Absolutely. them. So for me, the planning needs to start really early. Yeah. I'm quite excited about your study, actually. You <laughs> may hear it in my voice already. Um, well, but I'd be interested once the pilot's done yeah. for you to approach us again, because I think this is something that I would encourage our department to get involved oh, excellent. in. Excellent. Well, that would be great. I totally agree. You know, the, you talk about, you know, these these things we do in really, really good will to patients, but recognising that there are things that 
an early perspective on on early mobilisation would potentially mitigate. And you listen to some patient narratives and the living hell they're experiencing. Mm. And, you know, obviously we can't say that we could have prevented all of those. But, you know, I'm sure there are some things that we could have prevented by just changing our perspective on critical care. And, but it, it, I mean, that, that's another point, isn't it? You know, we talk about ICU delirium almost constantly. Mm-hmm. We bring out advisory papers on ICU delirium who tell us that we can do this, mm-hmm. this, this, this and this. And the ICUs I've worked in, we don't do any of mm-hmm. it. Simple measures like turning the lights down in the mm-hmm. afternoon, like giving patients. Why is it so difficult to give a patient an eye shield, yeah. cover their mm-hmm. eyes at night so that it goes dark? What's so hard about putting some earplugs into their ears at night? Because I can't imagine what it would be like to try and sleep through that noise when you're coming in and out of this drug-induced coma. Um, It must just be horrible, but we don't do it, and I I don't know why we don't do it. But, you know, you you mentioned... I mean, it's all about this idea of of changing practice and changing culture, isn't it, and changing the way that we've always done things around here. And you mentioned about, you know, sepsis, sepsis, well, look how long it's taken to get that into practice. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's the work of people like Ron Daniels and their persistence that's made that happen. But at least Um, that kind of was more closely aligned to the current sort of biomedical model that's within critical care. Something yeah. like managing the, the physical and psychological sequelae in terms of, you, you know, the strategies you were just talking about to, to manage delirium um, and the early the early rehabilitation strategies I've been talking about. They feel to some extent like such a paradigm shift that, you know, it's, it's, it's even harder. And I think, you know, this is why we see this this massive gap between the evidence that we have on early mobilisation and the reality we have on early mobilisation. Do you think we work hard enough to make that evidence evident? Um, well, yeah. To our, to our practitioners at the bedside? Do you, well, do, because yeah. I, I wonder how many of the nurses at the bedside would actually know some of the evidence yeah. that we're talking about here tonight. And, and that's not to be patronising no. or to be critical, because I think maybe it's up to us as more senior practitioners to work harder to go, put that knowledge in front of them yeah. to then justify some of the things that we're asking them to do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's fair to say that there are pockets of really amazing practice and some yeah. really innovative things going on. But equally, there aren't. And, you know, it, it is about, uh, uh, about um, you know, bridging that gap. Yeah. Um, but I think... And again, this is coming now from my sort of anecdotal experience rather than any kind of empirical data. But I think that actually making it everybody's responsibility rather than just, um, you know, the the therapy services saying, well, actually, this is my kind of little occupational role. This is my jurisdiction. Yeah actually makes people more interested. It engages them. And, you know, as as a physio, how can I say, um, you know, my work is essential, but I will only come here for an hour a day, you know, and, and do this. Mm. That's then surely missing out so many windows of opportunity that other people who are involved in the patient's care can use 
by you know by way of, of of rehabilitation. So if I give you an example, when um, when I was uh, working within the critical care unit, um, I would assess my patient, um, and I would. Uh, teach the nurse who was looking after them that day some handling skills so maybe a way of moving them that might not increase tone if you know if it was a patient with neurological problems um, a way of positioning them so that we maintained as much joint range of motion as possible and put uh, you know put muscles in a lengthened position a way that would perhaps um, mobilize the spine um, so that Rather than me just coming on long and doing my little sessions of rehabilitation, there was some carryover in between times. And we then used to engage the relatives as well to, to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So I think by making rehabilitation everybody's responsibility, we get a bigger buy-in and we have more potential um, for, for making this something that is, becomes normalised practice within critical care. But we've got one heck of a job to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do fully appreciate that because it sounds like the pilot study itself is going to be a major piece of work anyway. How what? How long a period of time are we talking about for the pilot to take place? Oh, we, we'll be doing this. You have been doing this over the last month and the, you know, the next month. Um, and then it will be a case of us sitting down as a study team and saying, OK, so this is what we've got. This can inform, um, you know, a, a a multi-center study one of the things that you know that i do need to acknowledge is that the center that we're looking at for our pilot study by virtue of the fact that they you know they've um gladly taken on this piece of equipment you know they've employed these extra staff means that they already have to some extent a buy-in to early rehabilitation so you know that is an um essentially a source of bias for us yeah I don't think that that um, means that we won't get anything interesting out of our pilot data, you know, and I know it, 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 means, it doesn't mean that. Um, but I think, you know, we needed to start somewhere, and I think that that was, you know, that was fair play. Um, we'll st- certainly be wanting to look at different sites across our critical care network, um, but also looking, you know, ideally at, at other sites and really trying to get a very large perspective on you know different cultures in terms of different critical care cultures um, and different experiences you know from ones where you know early rehabilitation is is alive and well and and ones where you know it really isn't a consideration or it's a last ditch consideration well you and i need to speak to um a guy called chris bassford who works at coventry he's going to be at the ics conference he used to be one of the consultants at the hospital i worked at and he's now moved to the coventry and warwick hospital Uh he actually approached me a couple of months ago and said why do we not do more qualitative research in (laughs) itu to which to which my answer was because we have to jump to through too many bloody hoops to make it happen he tried to get a little bit of a, a meeting together about it which unfortunately didn't happen but he's going to be at the ics and i think uh, perhaps you you he and i ought to try and uh, meet up and have a little chat because i could eulogize about qualitative research you know clearly it's it's a passion of mine but you know i'm, I'm fairly pragmatic i can you know i can accept his limitations but for something like this where 
Yeah. You know, we know, you know, we're really scratching our heads. We don't really have anything tangible about why this isn't working, why this isn't translating. Mm. Qualitative research really is the only place to start because, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, yeah. surely, it, you know, it can lead on to intervention studies, but actually, we'll get something far better from it if we understand or aim to understand what's going on qualitatively and then yeah. build from that. Because I think ultimately, because this is this is this is not about treating patients with drugs. It's treating patients with respect okay. and with care and with TLC and with a care for their future. Absolutely. So you know, areas under the curve and confidence intervals yeah. not quite so relevant to necessarily understanding the thought process that 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 take place. And I'm sure there must be a consistency to those thought processes as as something um, like the um, like the MPT toolkit that you mentioned yeah. earlier, the normalization process toolkit, yeah. um, that very clearly demonstrates trying to get underneath and behind some of those thought yeah. processes. So I think, like you say, that this needs to be a qualitative piece of research and it's going to be va- very valid when it, when it does come yeah. through. So, One of the things I did this month as well is went to my hosting account for my podcast, which was the company called Libsyn. And you can get various packages depending on how much you pay. And I paid a little bit extra this month to see my statistics broken down in a little bit more detail. And one of the things that actually surprised me when I did this is that most of my podcasts, sorry, not most of my podcasts, a good proportion of my podcasts are being downloaded by people in, wait for it, California. A good proportion of people are listening to me from California. So those of you that are out there in America, hi. Uh, I'm slightly flattered that you think I have something worth listening to. It's great to be in contact with you. If you ever wanted to speak to me, contact me via Twitter. Use my SpeakPipe on my website. I'd be more than happy to chat to you. It'd be nice to interact with you and find out some of the issues that you've got out there in America. They're probably not a whole lot different from some of the issues we've got in the critical care world over here in the UK or indeed around the world. I think we've probably all got very similar problems. So it was nice to see there's not just California, though, all over the United States, there's uh, people listening to my podcast as well as around the world. But it just surprised me a little bit that a major proportion of my listeners are actually from uh, California. So I just thought I'd share that one with you. I have also just presented at a conference down in Southampton for the British Association of Critical Care Nurses. Karen Gerber there got in touch with me. She's one of the committee members, along with her and Nikki Credland. Um, Both uh, were there at the conference and I presented on advanced practitioners, the past, the present and the future. Uh, and just gave a relatively small audience just a glimpse of some of the things that I've done in the past, things that I'm doing now and things that we hope to do in the future with this role I think advanced practitioners uh, are here to stay most definitely and it was just nice to share some of my views. One of the things that made me prick my ears a little bit with them is that they are the British Association of Critical Care Nurses are on the advisory panel for the NCPOD um, committee which are the safety committee who um, printed a, uh, published a report a few years ago about some of the issues in critical care which uh, brought about things like the critical care outreach service. Um, and apparently their newest report is due out and it does have some quite alarming conclusions and I'm really looking forward to seeing that. It's going to be interesting to see some of the changes that still need to be made to make sure that we improve our patients experience and hopefully prolong their lives as well. So that was a very interesting conference to go to as well. 
And finally, as we are so close, I can't go without mentioning the Intensive Care Society state-of-the-art conference. I have already mentioned it a couple of times, but unfortunately I'm going to mention it again. It's coming up in a couple of weeks now. It's December the 7th to the 9th. Like I've said before, Ganesh and the committee have worked very hard to make this a good conference. The numbers are looking good for this year. It would be nice to see you there. If you see me there, by all means, tap me on the shoulder. Come and say hello. It would be lovely to meet you. Um, and be warned, I may have a microphone in my hand, so I may grab a quick interview from you as well. The other thing to mention as well is I have put a lot of the links that Fiona refers to in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. And this is the point where I put the plug in for my Amazon links. It does cost me some money to run this podcast and the website. It doesn't cost me a fortune, but it would be nice to cover some of the costs So I'm just asking you a very small favour. I've put some Amazon links on the website. If you click on those links, you go through my affiliate link. If you buy anything on Amazon, I make a small commission. It doesn't cost you any extra at all. It all comes from Amazon. I don't want to make a fortune. I'd just love to be able to cover some of the costs so that I continue to provide good quality content. I could perhaps go to the odd conference. I can improve some of my equipment to make the sound of the podcast a little better. As I say, I'm not going to make a fortune, I'm not buying yachts, but it would do me a big, big favour if you would go via those links and make a purchase or two, and like I say, I get a commission and it doesn't cost you any extra. That's it, I've taken enough of your time, thank you for putting me in your ears again, and hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Tweet us at CC Practitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash critical care practitioner. Or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>